This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 15th. Today, the story of the fifth girl in the Birmingham bombing. And an update on the officers charged with killing George Floyd. On September 15, 1963, a bomb went off in the morning at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, and it killed four little girls. The bombing horrified the nation and touched off calls to pass the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And we'll keep marching and marching and marching until one day you look around and we'll all be marching together. My name is Sydney Trent, and I'm a local enterprise reporter at The Washington Post. Sydney has been reporting on this bombing that happened 57 years ago today. Four members of the KKK planted a bomb outside the 16th Street Church in Birmingham. Four Black girls died, but it took decades for all four men to be convicted. The 16th Street bombing has become central to the legacy of the civil rights movement. But Sydney chose to focus on someone who is often overlooked, the one girl who survived. A lot of people are familiar with this bombing, and it's remembered as this pivotal moment in history. But you've gone back to talk to the fifth girl who was there, the girl who survived. What was it like talking to her about the story, and, and how, did, how did you even find her? And why did she decide that she wanted to share her experiences with this? Well, I had come across a very small story that a friend had shared with me. I realized that although I'm pretty familiar with the big events of the civil rights movement, that I had not heard of Sarah Collins Rudolph. And, you know, it's very intrigued that there were actually five girls in that restroom and that one of them had survived. And it was kind of amazing to me that her story wasn't publicized. And so it was a natural story to pursue. And so did you actually meet Sarah in person? Oh, I did. Yes. I went to Birmingham for about a week. I went to Birmingham and then Atlanta to hear her speak. It is my honor and pleasure, a privilege. I'm shaking. I'm nervous. I don't normally get nervous. This event was sponsored by the Greater Atlanta Black Prosecutors Association. Please welcome Mrs. Sarah Collins Rudolph. She's this petite woman, very soft-spoken. Thank you for inviting me. So I thought, you know, everybody... But she has this kind of power about her. It's partly the power of her story, and it's partly that underneath that reserve, you know, she has this 
iron core that's kind of seen her through everything that she's had to experience. So walk me through what her experience was of that day and what she remembers from what happened. Well, you know, she remembers that her mother fixed some breakfast and fixed their hair, too. But I, uh, I, I remember how my mother used to wake us up about five o'clock because she had to do our hair. And she would wash it early in the morning and she would uh, dry it and straighten it. So we got up real early. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this was a time when people dressed up for church, right? Yes. <laughs> and that they were running late. One of her sisters had this little purse that was shaped like a football with a zipper, and they were kind of tossing it back and forth. My sister pocketbook, she had this little purse, and we played all the way to church, just having such a good time. So uh, we went into the ladies' lounge. It was too late to go to Sunday school, so they gathered in the bathroom, and they were just basically laughing and chatting. The school year had just started and they were talking about, you know, the teachers, etc. At this point, it's uh, Sarah Collins Rudolph, who was 12, Addie Mae Collins, her older sister, who was 14, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley. And when they came out the stall, they came out all together and and Denise walked over to Addie and asked Addie to tie the sash on her dress. And just then, when Addie's arms were outstretched, boom, that's when the bomb went off. And all I could say was, Jesus, Addie, 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 but she announced Because Sarah was standing behind them, for some reason, she wasn't killed. But she had dozens of shards of glass in her eye, and she became permanently blinded in one eye. And a church deacon came down and rescued her. When he had heard the noise downstairs, he, he was going to come down the steps. The step was blown away. So what he did, he jumped down because it had blew a big hole in the church. And he looked in there, he seen me standing, just bleeding. Remarkably, she was still standing in the middle of all of this smoke and destruction. She, she was actually standing? She was, she was actually standing in the middle of it. Yes, I was still standing. That's amazing, don't you think? Yeah, She was taken to a hospital, of course, and there's this famous photo in Life magazine that was published on September 27th of her in a hospital bed and her eyes covered with these large white patches of gauze and her, you know, her lips are swollen and she's obviously, you know, very injured. And that photograph kind of went around the world and and shocked the nation. And what were the days like for her after that, where I imagine she was, you know, grieving her sister, grieving her her friends, but also kind of becoming famous for, for having survived this? 
She was famous for a minute, you know, and then that spotlight faded. You know, she was just left to cope, you know, with what had gone on. No, I didn't receive anything. We didn't get any any, uh, conversation or restitution or anything. Her family was poor and her mother was in shock. She went from being an A student to barely passing her classes. She was crying every day over her injury and the loss of her sister. I was treated as though uh, nothing had happened to me. I didn't get any counseling. I just went back to school. And the way the kids act, they act if they didn't know I was in a bombing. They, treat, they still treated me the same. She was actually very scared to go back to church. Um, she was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And, of course, you know, they hadn't pinpointed that disorder at the time, but that's clear that's what it was. And they tried to take her back to church a time or two, and she was just so shaken and paralyzed that they stopped going to church. She had wanted to be a nurse. Um, and, you know, she feels to this day that, you know, that dream was kind of shattered with the bombing. Mm. I, I can also imagine that she might have had complicated feelings about the fact that she survived, you know, that she was the one girl from that group who made it out of there. Yeah, she didn't suffer from survivor's guilt. She didn't feel like something was wrong with her, which was very interesting to me because sometimes people internalize these things. But she thought that something was very uh, sick and evil with white people who would do this. But, you know, she it affected her life. You know, she she was paralyzed by fear for much of her life. Well, especially when you consider the fact that it took so long for all the perpetrators of the bombing to actually be brought to justice. How did that part play out in her life and and contribute to her fears of like this could actually happen again if these people aren't in prison? Yeah, it took a very long time. And she did go to all of the trials. The justice was so long delayed, you know, almost 40 years to bring all of them to justice. And that was very, very hard on her to feel like her sister and these girls had died and she had been injured and the nation didn't care enough to bring them to justice quickly. Like my wife said, you hold on to that hate, it makes you look old and you be sick. You got that hatred. It's very important to Sarah and her her husband, uh, George Rudolph, who is really her champion. You can't get to Sarah without going through George. Mm -hmm. But it's it's a hard thing that, you know, you lose a loved one like that. I remember when I used to uh, be angry to it. I didn't even know I was scared that look. Go in the place and folks say, what? What's wrong with you? And I just, only thing I see, I just look like that. She wanted justice for her sister, and now she wants justice for herself. She feels like she has been overlooked. And and so how is she trying to find that justice for herself? There's a law firm here in D.C. Uh, that has taken on her case pro bono. They've involved Senator Doug Jones uh, of Alabama. Senator from Alabama. 
Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent to call off the quorum call. Who was actually a prosecutor in the bombing suspects, the men who were convicted of the bombing. As many folks know by now, a defining moment in my career as a prosecutor was bringing to justice two former Ku Klux Klansmen for the bombing of Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church in 1963. That act of domestic terrorism, and that's exactly what it was, an act of domestic terrorism. The whole world shook as people asked, how could this happen in America, the land of the free, the home of the brave? They're trying to get the state of Alabama to apologize and to give her some kind of restitution for her injuries. And it's interesting. It's a very emotional issue for her. She does not, she's not looking for a so-called handout, but it's the symbolism of it, both the apology and the money. It's like one alone would not be enough. And has the state of Alabama suggested that they might be willing to, to do that? So far, the state has not apologized and they haven't offered to pay restitution. And it's unclear what's going to happen in the future. I think her case is well known enough in Alabama that they probably are aware, were aware before the lawyers got involved. And uh, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. As you said, the, the bombing is remembered as one of the catalysts to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And just the the shock and awe that happened after that is what made a lot of people reflect on the importance of the Civil Rights Act. But how does that relate back to how Sarah views what happened to her? Well, I think, you know, you can look at it on two levels, and I think she does. I mean, certainly she's she's happy that they passed the Civil Rights Act. But she feels quite differently about the state of Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Got to live a long life without going to prison. Tanny went to prison. They, they died. Sarah, you know, and her husband George emphasized the fact that what happened at the 16th Baptist Church was an act of state-sponsored terrorism, and Bull Connor. Uh, who was a police commissioner at the time, uh, Eugene, Bull was his nickname, Connor, was notorious for his racism and for his willingness to use police brutality against blacks. And so he represented the government there. And then you had George Wallace, who in resisting the federal demands to desegregate in Birmingham, declared that what this country needs is a few first-class funerals. So to Sarah, they were clearly aiding and abetting or egging the racism on, which led to that bombing that killed the four little girls. So while you were in Birmingham, you actually got to visit the church where the bombing happened. What was that like? Oh, well, that's hallowed ground, you know, in a, in a, in a sense. The church is, is, is a very beautiful, large building. How many people in Birmingham? Well, I went with Sarah and her husband. Who did you guys think of each other in high school? <laughs> you were the only somebody who would talk to me. What, he was come up? over there, Sarah Collins, Sarah Collins, Sarah Collins. <laughs> There the church is in the back. 
Straight ahead in the oh, city. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. 16th Street Baptist Church. Yeah, I'm going to lock it. And she showed me, you know, where the stairs were, where the Klansmen had, had placed the bombs. Didn't even know they had a bomb in there. The bomb was under the steps. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what he was keeping right here. the date, Sunday, September 15th, 1963, at 10.22 a.m. That's interesting that they have the exact time, huh? Yeah. And what time that clock stopped. That's when the, oh, the clock stopped. Yeah, because the bomb, the bomb, when the bomb went off, that's what the clock broke. Oh. And across the street, there is a a sculpture of uh, the four little girls. They got girl's name, but they got Sarah. Her sister Miller name spelled wrong. Supposed to be M A E. They got M A Y. So when you think about Sarah's experiences and the trauma that she's carried with her over so many years, what do you think that says about the legacy of so many people who were victims of racial violence? Well, I think that is partly why her story resonates um, right now, because we've seen an increase in hate crimes. And you, we tend to focus on uh, the moment of the crime. And we don't look at what these hate crimes do to people, what racism does to people. You know, how these experiences reverberate throughout people's lives. And I think Sarah's story shows that, you know, there was this big moment of fame with the Life magazine cover, you know, and then the spotlight moved away to other things. And she was really left to struggle and deal with this trauma. She got no mental health support or, you know, emotional support. And racism, even without a hate crime, can truly affect the course of people's lives. And that bears remembering. Sydney Trent is a local enterprise reporter at The Post. And now, one more thing. I'm Holly Bailey. I'm a national reporter with The Washington Post. I am temporarily based in Minneapolis, where I am covering the criminal case into George Floyd's death. When the video of George Floyd's death went viral in May, it sparked nationwide protests and calls for police reform and a national conversation on racial justice. But the criminal trial of the officers charged in his death is just getting started. The four former Minneapolis police officers charged in his death are Derek Chauvin, Alex King, Thomas K. Lane, and Tu Tao. And they were in court Friday for the latest hearing in the case as it progresses towards a planned trial date next March. This hearing was the first time that Derek Chauvin was in court in person. Chauvin is the white police officer who held his knee on Floyd's throat. 
What I was sort of interested in was to see how he would interact with the other officers, mainly because the prosecution wants to try them together. But the four officers say that they should have separate trials because essentially they're blaming each other for Floyd's death. In court hearings and in court filings, attorneys for Thomas Lane and Alex King, who were rookie cops who had been on the force for less than a week, have said that they tried to intervene with Chauvin as he held Floyd on the ground. Thomas Lane has said that he asked Chauvin twice to see if they could should turn Floyd over as Floyd was complaining about his struggling to breathe and ultimately stopped moving and Chauvin didn't do anything. They've argued that they were adhering to what Chauvin was saying because he was the senior officer at the scene. He had been on the force for 19 years. And they have basically painted their defense as saying that, you know, there were rookie cops who couldn't challenge a senior officer, which is something that prosecutors have dismissed, saying, you know, they had responsibility to intervene with Chauvin to get Floyd turned over and off the ground. On the other hand, Tu Tao and Derek Chauvin, who arrived at the scene a few minutes after the investigation started, have said that they arrived at a scene where they were basically playing supporting roles. Tu Tao was filmed sort of holding back bystanders, and he's argued that he couldn't see what was happening behind him so that he shouldn't bear any responsibility for what happened. Whereas Derek Chauvin has, has basically said that it doesn't matter that he was the senior officer at the scene, that he arrived and was playing a supporting role to King and Lane, who had been the first to encounter Floyd and therefore were in charge and had responsibility of the scene. I mean, in a court filing, he notably said that if they had handled the scene better, if they had tried to de-escalate tensions with Floyd as they pulled him from the car, or if they had, you know, done various other things that perhaps Floyd would be alive today. Among those in the courtroom on Friday were members of George Floyd's family. They've had some presence at previous hearings, but this time most of the family was there, including um, their attorney, Ben Crump, and they stood outside and really demanded justice. I mean, one of the things that we've been seeing in this case is that the attorneys for the former officers are trying to make an issue of George Floyd's past behavior, pointing to his past criminal history and also autopsy findings that found that he had drugs in his system to say that, you know, he didn't die of a neck restraint, he died of a drug overdose and that he was a dangerous person. And so they were really there to, you know, defend his character and say the only injustice that happened was the fact that he died while on the street begging for his life. They saying he died from a drug overdose. They saying that he was a non-compliant Floyd. Oh, that's my brother, you guys. Let me tell you, he's an uncle. He's a father. Mm -hmm. He's a friend. Mm -hmm. Pillar of his community in Houston, Texas. Everybody loved George where you're from in Minnesota. The people of Minnesota loved him too. Just people that got to know him. And one thing about George, he won't, he will want us to get his justice for him. And them officers, saying that drug overdose killed him, that did not kill him. That officer, the only one that was getting high off my brother begging for his life. That's the only one I saw getting high.
We're expecting to hear a few more issues in coming weeks, including whether, you know, there will be separate trials, including whether the case will stay here. But we're also going to be hearing more from the defense on, you know, these cases involving Chauvin and past restraints um, and also the question of how Chauvin trained Alex King and what he told him about how to run a scene. And so this case is really, you know, just starting to get going. Holly Bailey is a national reporter for The Post. The death of George Floyd has brought national attention to other recent incidents of people killed by police, including the death of Breonna Taylor, a young woman in Louisville, Kentucky, who was killed by police after they entered her home in the middle of the night using a no-knock warrant. No officers have yet been charged in her death. On Tuesday afternoon, the city of Louisville reached a $12 million settlement with Breonna Taylor's estate. The city also agreed to a long list of police reforms. This settles the civil portion of their case. But Breonna Taylor's family, including her mother, Tamika Palmer, are continuing to demand criminal charges for the officers involved. As significant as today is, it's only the beginning of getting full justice for Breonna. We must not lose focus on what the real job is. And with that being said, it's time to move forward with the criminal charges because she deserves that and much more. Her beautiful spirit and personality is working through all of us on the ground. So please continue to say her name, Brianna Taylor. The case is expected to be considered by a grand jury soon. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from kids about what it's like to go back to school online. If you're the parent of a young child who is learning remotely right now, we would love to hear how that's going, whether your kid misses their friends, their teacher, their school, and if online learning is stressing them out. Please interview your kid using the Voice Memo app on your phone and email it to us at postreports at washpost.com and include what grade they're in and where you live. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com slash regulation.